My dear brethren and sisters, although we live in a very high-tech age, and I'm looking right at the back of the hall right now, with almost every other person walking around with a phone clutched to their ear, and the internet now such a major part of many, many people's lives, there are some habits, I think, that seem never to change. And I'm thinking particularly of the ways that are still used, even today, to conclude certain business contracts. When I was still working, a little while ago now, I was sometimes involved in the business of getting a contract signed to buy something, or whatever it may be. And once all the fine print had been studied in minute detail and numerous changes made and agreed, at last the contract was signed and the purchase could, I thought, go ahead. But that was not the case. Before the order could be raised, the contract had to be sealed by the mayor of the City of London. We may be in the 21st century, but that contract could not be put into effect until a clerk had stuck onto it a little piece of red sticky paper looking very vaguely like some sealing wax, I suppose, and the two padlocks on an embossing machine opened to allow the red paper to be impressed with the City of London's seal. Wow. Yes, sealing the contract, almost in the way people have sealed instructions and letters for thousands of years. That sealing was still necessary to prove the contract was valid. Like the time we read about, for example, in Esther, where after Haman had been hanged and Ahasuerus instructed Esther to write to the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring, for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Yes, once that letter had been written and sealed by the king, the safety of the Jews, as we remember, could not be reversed. It's rather fortunate, really, that seals like that one used by King Ahasuerus have been in such constant use for so very, very long, all down the ages, right down to the present day, albeit in a different format now. Because the archaeologists have been able to discover lots of clay impressions made by those seals, many of which testify to the accuracy of God's word, which is wonderful. For example, a complete and undamaged seal impression has been uncovered that bears the inscription, Ahaz, son of Yotam, king of Judea. And similar lumps of clay with the impressions of seals have been discovered with the names of at least eight of the people who the prophet Jeremiah wrote about. How very reassuring for us. 
What a wonderful testimony, brethren and sisters, to the accuracy of God's word that so many names have been preserved in this way, pressed into lumps of clay by personal seals, proving without doubt that all these people mentioned by Jeremiah as one, they did actually exist. He wrote about people that existed. The seals prove it. They all signed, they all sealed documents by placing the impression of their own personal seal in a lump of wet clay attached to various documents. And the documents may long since have disappeared, but the lumps of clay still remain as a testimony to the accuracy of God's word. So with seals being such a commonplace part of everyday life in Bible times, it's hardly surprising, I suggest, that God's word not only mentions them, but also uses the idea of a seal in a number of important and meaningful ways. We have two examples in the gospel that we're reading at the moment, John's gospel. A few days ago, you may recall, in John 3, verse 33, we read, He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. His seal that God is true. And speaking about Christ, the writer J.B. Phillips paraphrases this passage in John like this. The one who comes from heaven, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the, one, <coughs> the one who comes from heaven is above all others, and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one is accepting his testimony. Yet if a man does accept it, he is accepting the fact that God is true. So that seal proved the fact that God is true. Yes, believing that Jesus is God's son, which is what we do, we are confirming the truth, brethren and sisters, of God's own statement. In the same way as a seal confirms that the document that it's attached to is authentic. We put our own seal, as it were, on the truth of God's word by the things that we believe and the things that we declare to be true. So we have an important part to play in God's plan, to reveal him to the world around us by our actions and by our words and to reveal the work of his son. We are a living seal, a proof of those facts. And then in John 6 verse 27, we have another idea behind the use of a seal, one that's of very great importance to each one of us. But notice the context, if you're turning to that chapter, chapter 6, in which, notice the context in which it's used and the warning that that context has for us. Verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. And again, Phillips put that particular verse into modern English and he makes the message, I think, even clearer. Allow me to read to you what his words were. You should not work for the food which does not last, but for the food which lasts on into eternal life. 
This is the food the Son of Man will give you. And he is the one who bears the stamp, the seal, of God the Father. So God has given us, brethren and sisters, spiritual food to eat from his written word. And he's authorized his son to give us his commands. And those commands should govern our everyday life. And if we obey those commands, they lead to the reward of everlasting life. Because it has been sealed and made certain by God himself. Thinking again about the meanings behind the use of seals, I think helps us. Helps us to get more out of any mention of seals and being sealed that we come across in our readings. And there are indeed quite a few of them. You might swap them. We don't have to look at all of them, of course, but if we did, we would find that seals and sealing is used in various ways, all of which can quickly have exhortations for us. And I've very briefly summarized them for you under four headings, and I'll read the summaries to you. Seals, first of all, are used as an emblem of security, sometimes combined with the idea of destination, being secured from destruction, marked out for reward, combined with the idea of secrecy and postponement of a disclosure. Security, destination, marked out for a reward, that rings true with our beliefs, doesn't it, brethren and sisters? Second use of seal. The idea of being sealed is also used in the context of circumcision and an authentication of righteousness as a confirmation of the covenant made with Abraham by God. So there's a connection that we celebrate as well. Abraham and the promises made to him. And thirdly, sometimes when seals are mentioned, there's the idea of ownership coming out in the use, for example, of seal in Second of Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. The firm foundation of God standeth, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. That's a seal of certainty. The Lord knoweth them that are his. This idea of ownership by God, it contrasts so strongly with those who will be found without that seal of God in their foreheads in the day of reckoning in the future. And lastly, there's also a mention of seals in the sealing of sacks, indicating a full measure of the contents. And that makes me think of the idea of being perfect or complete, having a full measure of righteousness attributed to us, and then the sack is sealed. So we've got a number of instances, just examples there, of when you find the word seal or seals, look at its context, explore its meaning, and find how it applies or could apply to ourselves. Ownership. 
marked out for a reward. Postponement, yes. Authentication of righteousness. Confirmation of the covenant. Being made perfect. All these ideas are there to strengthen us, brethren and sisters, encourage us, guide us, and be, as it were, music to our ears. Because they typify our ownership by the one we claim to serve, whom we trust has marked us out for the reward of everlasting life. Postponed, yes, until the time of our Lord's return, but that will be when our righteousness will be confirmed as a result of the Lord's sacrifice and the covenant promise made so long ago that will at last be fulfilled. Now, as we read that reading with the help of Brother David from John, we read all about that man who was blind and that clay that was made to cover his eyes. Have you ever wondered why in that John 9 verse 6 we read about Jesus making that clay and spreading that clay on the eyes of the man who was blind? In effect... I hope I'm not stretching a point here, but in effect, he was sealed up, wasn't he? His eyes were sealed closed, so he could no longer, even if he had sight, he could no longer look at the world around him. He could no longer be distracted by the world and all its sinfulness. And it was only when that seal was broken and the clay was washed away that the blind man was healed and he could see and he could see the truth and for us that clay then stands in certain ways as the earth of which we are all made that source of our sinfulness that spiritual blindness that we all have a seal that only our obedience to commands of Christ as that blind man was commanded will bring about its removal Allow us to see properly and cure us of our mortality. Given the purpose of our meeting together this morning then, to remember how it is that all that prospect has been made possible, let's look at a few more places where seals and sealing are actually mentioned. So we can fully appreciate the certainty of this contract that has been sealed for our benefit. It's a contract that was written so long ago, wasn't it? Long before we even existed, brethren and sisters, but which was put into full force by the work of Christ that we're remembering yet again this morning. If you wish to look at how Paul explains our position, it's in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through to 14, which I'm going to read to you, but I'm going to read it to you in J.B. Phillips' version. Not because it's better as such, but sometimes good to have it in fresh words, words that make it very, very clear. So reading from J.B. Phillips, I'm going to start in verse 1 of Ephesians, sorry, verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to God for giving us every possible spiritual benefit in Christ. 
For consider what he has done. Before the foundations of the world, he chose us to become, in Christ, <clears throat> his holy and blameless children, living without, within his constant care. He planned, in his purpose of love, that we should be adopted as his own children through Jesus Christ that we might learn to praise that glorious generosity of his which has made us welcome in the everlasting love he bears toward the Son. It's through the Son, at the cost of his own blood, that we are redeemed, freely forgiven through that full and generous grace which has overflowed into our lives and opened our eyes to the truth. For God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan, and it's this. He purposes in his sovereign will that all human history shall be consummated in Christ, that everything that exists in heaven or earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him, in Christ. And here is the staggering thing, that in all that in all which will one day belong to him, to Christ, we have been promised a share. Since we were long ago destined for this by the one who achieves his purpose by his sovereign will. So that we, brethren and sisters, as the first to put out confidence in Christ, may bring praise to his glory. And you too trusted in him when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And after you gave your confidence to him, you were, so to speak, stamped, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of purchase until the day when God completes the redemption of what he has paid for as his own. And that will again be to the praise of his glory. Stamped with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of purchase. That's how Philip renders the phrase in the AV, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Brethren and sisters, this sealing the Holy Spirit of promise has nothing to do, nothing at all to do with possession of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, this guarantee would be limited to those very few who possessed the Spirit in the first century. What this is actually saying is that our redemption, our future possession of life eternal, is guaranteed by no less than the power of God himself. God himself will put this contract into effect. Not only for those who are alive at Christ's return, but for all those as well who now sleep in the dust of the earth and who died in faith. A verse later in Ephesians confirms this interpretation when it tells us, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. For those Paul wrote to, that day of redemption lay a very long time in the future, didn't it? 
But the Holy Spirit of God would guarantee that the covenant made with them and with us will eventually be fulfilled. The contract is certain. It is sealed and certain. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he expands on this idea of the Holy Spirit being involved in our sealing. Reading this time from the Revised Version, 2 Corinthians 1. Now he that establisheth us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now the difference here, that's in Corinthians, the difference here from the reference in Ephesians is that the Spirit is in our hearts, which certainly has nothing to do with the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And hearts, as we well know, brethren and sisters, in both the Old and the New Testament, conveys more than just feelings, it involves the understanding, doesn't it? And so in our hearts means in our minds. In other words, we are sealed by the Spirit of God when our appreciation of our privileged position has an obvious effect on our thoughts and on our actions when our first love is for the things of the Spirit. So brethren and sisters, we can only say we are sealed by God and truly related to the promises when we are moved to do God's will, to walk in his ways. We must be determined in our minds to live our lives in accord with his commands as revealed by the Spirit in his word. As if it were the Spirit itself powering us to do so. Like the redeemed in Revelation, we need to be sealed in our foreheads, marked out as God's people by our faithful and spiritual service. We've been chosen by God to be heirs of his kingdom. And our reflection of his spirit now in our understanding and in our wisdom achieved from reading God's word is both a sign of his choice of us and also a guarantee of spiritual fullness to come. Now we know, brethren and sisters, that when the sign of circumcision was given, and you remember that was one of the four places where seals are mentioned, it was another illustration of those same ideas, an expression of belonging to God, and also, of course, of a departure from iniquity. Paul referred to circumcision when he wrote to the Romans about the righteousness that was attributed to Moses by his acts of faith. Reading from Romans 4, he, Moses, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And that's our situation, isn't it, brethren and sisters? Righteousness imputed unto us as a result of our belief and our baptism into Christ. So long as that belief is followed by active obedience to the commands that are laid upon us. We won't labor now simply for the meat which perishes, surely. 
But for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto all of us, for him hath the Father sealed. And it's the comfort and certainty of this divine contract, if I can call it that, this divine contract that we have through Christ that we celebrate once more this morning in the bread and the wine. And as we do so, we remember a man who had nowhere to lay his head. No real possessions. No business dealings. A man who probably never signed any contracts, never owned any property, or had to authorize anything with a seal himself. He had no wealth, no temporal power, no legacy to leave to anyone when he was gone. Such as we might, I think we can safely assume that evidence of Christ's existence will never be discovered by the archaeologist as it has for those who have in times past set their seal upon temporal matters. So insignificant and powerless was Christ in the eyes of those then in authority that they challenged him with the question, by whose authority do you do these things? To which Christ answered, not a word, not a word. And that frustrated them even more because they sought to convict him by the answer that they hoped he might give. And yet it was Christ who declared on another occasion that all power had been given to him by his Father. But it was a power reserved for use at a more appropriate time and for a different purpose. Meanwhile, Christ was pleased to obey his Father in all things, even to the surrender of his own life, as a restrictive seal to be set eventually and for all time upon the destructive power of sin. And yet it was Christ who set the seal of his own blood upon the greatest covenant that has ever been drawn up. Is it curious that the seals used all down the ages in wax have been read? like blood. That new covenant sealed in Christ's own blood contains the promised gift of eternal life for all those who put their faith and trust in him. And it's Christ who opens up the way to the tree of life, now closed and sealed against those who reject the offer of salvation that's made possible through him. Times of great trouble may yet come upon our world, brethren and sisters. We know that is likely to be the case. We're told that through God's word. But not before the full number of God's chosen children have been made up. Hurt not the earth, we read in Revelation, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Yes, there has to be the full complement of that chosen number made up and sealed 
ready for Christ's return. Looking beyond these troubles that undoubtedly lie ahead to the time when Christ will sit in judgment, the record in Revelation tells us, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I, John, wept much, because no man was found worthy to open to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. Well, we now remember the one and only man then worthy to open those seals, those figurative seals. It's because our Lord prevailed against every temptation, giving his life as a perfect sacrifice for sin, that he's now worthy to open and to read the book and to look therein. Please God, that when he does that, brethren and sisters, he will find our names written in that book.